Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 293, Tuggy vs. Date Debate, Jesus is Human and Not Divine, Part 1. In this live debate held in Minnesota on May 31, 2019, I argue that according to the New Testament, Jesus is a unique man but is not divine. My opponent, apologist and author Chris Date, argues that it teaches Jesus to be human and divine. In this episode, you'll hear our opening statements and our rebuttals. The debate was ably moderated by my friend Keegan Chandler. Sorry, Keegan, I've cut you here, but you can see him in the video version that will soon be available at 21st Century Reformation Online. That's at 21stcr.org. Thanks are due especially to the organizers, Kingdom of God Ministry and Missions, to the host church, Pine Grove Bible Church, in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. This church is a member of the Church of God General Conference. And also my thanks to the several sponsors, Restoration Fellowship, 21st Century Reformation, Restitutio, Lighthouse Ministries, Minnesota Missionary Society, and Ichthus Publications, which hopefully later this year will publish a book with an expanded form of this debate. Finally, thanks to my debate opponent, Mr. Chris Date. We have this in common, that we take scripture very seriously. We think it's true, we expect it to make sense, we think it's important to get it right. But who did get it right? You, the listener, get to be the judge. I go first as the one who's positive on the debate question, so here's my opening statement. As time went on, the good news of Jesus Christ became encumbered with doctrines the apostles never preached. Thanks be to God, since the 16th century, Protestants have preached and practiced Christianity unhindered by the papacy, transubstantiation, devotion to Mary, or purgatory. But most Protestants, including my debate opponent tonight, are insufficiently reformed. It's time to set aside confused and confusing post-biblical theories in favor of simple biblical claims about God and his unique son. According to the Bible, Jesus is human and not divine. I will make my case based only on clear biblical teachings together with a few undeniable truths. While my opponent's theory will be based on reading between the lines of scripture, my Christology will be based on reading the lines. One who says that Jesus is God or Jesus is divine or Jesus has a divine nature may mean several different things. Some such claims are uncontroversial. To call something divine may just be to say that they're related in some important way to God. Thus, the earth is divine for it's God's handiwork. The scriptures are divine for they are inspired by God. And Jesus is divine for he's like God. All Christians accept that Jesus is divine in these ways. But when people say that Jesus is God, often they are asserting the numerical sameness of Jesus and God. In other words, they're saying that Jesus and God are related the way that you are to yourself, or how Abram is related to Abraham. The one just is the other. Jesus is God and God is Jesus. To put it differently, the words God and Jesus are co-referring terms, like the Donald and Donald Trump. 
To numerically identify is to collapse what may seem like two beings into one being, is to say that counting two beings, two things there, would be overcounting. Such a claim is demonstrably confused. It is self-evident that nothing can be a certain way and at the same time also not be that same way. When we discover any simultaneous qualitative difference, we realize we're dealing with two beings, not with one. Seeing differences between them, a reader of the New Testament realizes that Peter and Paul are not the same being. Yes, they're similar in many ways. Both are men, both are apostles, both are heroes of faith. But things can be similar in countless ways while still being two. Just a single simultaneous difference, no matter how small, proves that we are dealing with two beings and not with one. Now, in the New Testament, God and Jesus have many traits in common. Both are loving, forgiving, and pursuing our salvation. Both are working to advance the kingdom of God and to reveal God's ways to us. They're so alike that Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Paul says that Jesus is the image of God. But in the New Testament, God and Jesus also differ in many ways. Jesus was tempted. In contrast, the New Testament says God can't be tempted. Jesus died on a cross. But the New Testament assumes that God has never died because it implies that he's essentially immortal, in principle incapable of death. The New Testament is explicit that like you and me, Jesus has a God over him, the one God. But the monotheistic Jewish assumption is that the one God is subject to no one. The New Testament, Jesus gets his calling, his commission, his power, and his authority from the one God. This is no surprise since the one like a son of man in the prophecy of Daniel 7, which the New Testament understands to be the Messiah, is brought before God and given things which God has long had, namely dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. A similar vision is found in Revelation 5, which portrays the exaltation of the risen Jesus. In contrast, since any cosmos there is must be created and ruled by God, God can't in any sense get his position, power, or authority from anyone else. If there's a creation, God can't fail to be in charge of it. So, in principle, he can't be promoted to being in charge of it. Remember, one difference, big or small, proves that they are numerically two beings. And we've just noted many differences. Yes, I am belaboring the obvious. Sadly, what is obvious that God and his son are two beings is continually obscured by confused human traditions. Now, these traditions counsel a snappy comeback here. Of course, Jesus and God are not the same in every way. Jesus and God, that is to say Jesus and the Father, are the same being but different persons. But this late 4th century idea that there are multiple equally divine persons in the one God has no place in interpreting 1st century writings. The New Testament does not leave us free to speculate that the Father and the Son are two divine persons in God because it tells us explicitly what sorts of beings they are. They are a God and a man. The New Testament always and everywhere portrays Jesus as a real man, never as a God-man, never as God incarnate, never as God the Son. John has Jesus describe himself as a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. In 1 Timothy, we read that there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Paul sometimes compares and contrasts Jesus with Adam 
as when he writes, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven, that is, Jesus, when, like Jesus, we believers are raised to immortality. Man, man, man. This is explicit. And these writers are not anxious to follow up with and also divine because that's not their view. The central and repeated thesis of all four Gospels is that Jesus is God's Christ, his Messiah, which implies being human. The Messiah was predicted to be a literal descendant of David and to be a prophet like Moses, both of which imply being a real human being. The New Testament Jesus is miraculously conceived in and born to a human woman. He grows up and he prematurely dies. He puts his trust in God and regularly prays to God. The letter to the Hebrews explains that it was fitting that we should be reconciled to God by the sacrificial ministry of a fellow human being. It says, for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. According to the New Testament, Jesus is a Jewish man with the uniquely high call of being God's Messiah. Now, what sort of being is the Father? Does the New Testament teach that he is one of three divine persons within the one God? No, the Father just is God himself, the God of the Jews, the Lord of the Old Testament, the only true God. This is assumed in all New Testament writings and generally doesn't need to be stated. A careful reader will note that these writers normally use the terms God and the Father interchangeably because they think that typically those terms co-refer. And the fourth gospel pointedly clarifies just who the Father is in case you were thinking of confusing him with his Son. When arguing with his Jewish opponents, Jesus refers to the Father as, He of whom you say, He is our God. This reveals their shared assumption that the God of the Jews is the Father himself. Elsewhere, John has Jesus refer to the Father as the one who alone is God and as the only true God. Towards the end, Jesus says that this same Father is both his God and yours. In sum, the New Testament never states, implies, or assumes the existence of a tripersonal God, but it everywhere assumes and sometimes clearly states that the only God is the Father. Now, when it comes to thinking about Jesus, present-day evangelicals are divided. On the popular level of preaching and apologetics, Jesus and God are simply confused for one another. They're confused together. Their similarities are noted and their differences are ignored, while the shibboleth that Jesus is God is intoned. The Father is thanked for dying for us, and the word Jesus is used as if it were God's proper name. And this is lamentable confusion. But there are also sophisticates, various seminary graduates, armchair theologians, and of course, professional theologians and scholars in related areas. These would consider the numerical identification of Jesus and God, the collapsing of the two, to be an oversimplification of a grand tradition deriving especially from a council of Catholic bishops held at Chalcedon in the year 451. These elites will say Jesus is God, but they typically mean this as shorthand for the claim that Jesus has a divine nature. They follow a post-biblical tradition that requires us to say that there are two natures in Jesus, a human nature and a divine nature, all within the one Christ. Sober critical thinking is called for here, not indulgent appeals to mystery. This two natures language can mean a couple of different things. 
But with one exception, my objection to these theories is that they do not present us with a real man. To understand these theories, we need to disambiguate a key term. In ancient philosophy and theology, a nature can be an individual being, a single entity like you or a dog or God, or a nature can be the defining essential qualities of some sort of thing. In the first sense, you are a nature. In the second sense, a nature is a quality or set of qualities that you have. Now, what's being asserted about the Son of God here when it's said that he has two natures? Let's consider the options. To say that in Christ there are a divine nature and a human nature, where a nature is a being, a thing, an entity, means that in Christ, presumably as something like parts, there are a divine being and a human being, that is to say, a God and a man. Some of the ancient architects of two natures creeds thought exactly this, as did Origen before them. Pope Leo I, quoted at the 451 Council, thought that the human nature wept when Lazarus died, and later that human nature died on a cross, whereas it was the divine nature who called forth Lazarus from the grave, and the divine nature who went on living despite the crucifixion. In its favor, this is the only two natures theory that clearly and consistently includes a real man. He's right there. He's the guy who gave up his life on the cross while the unseen divine fellow kept on living. But such a theory clashes with the New Testament, which presents us with only one self here, variously called Jesus, the Messiah, and the Son of God. Nor do the actions and words coming from this one Jesus reveal two different actors and speakers. The New Testament presents us with only one Jesus, a man who's been empowered by God to do and to teach amazing things. He tells us he's been given God's spirit without measure, and that the Father who dwells in me does his works. In this man, Paul says, we can see God working to reconcile the world to himself. In the New Testament, the divine nature cooperating with Jesus is God, not some other divine person or some component of Jesus. And one too many sons threatens to turn into two too many. If these natures are a God and a man, then what of the whole Christ who's composed of them? This one mentioned by the creeds, the one that has two natures. Are there really three selves here, two of them composing a third as parts? Whether or not there are three selves in this theory, there are certainly numerically three things or beings here. On such a theory, only the human nature was assumed by, that is mysteriously united to, a divine nature. Only the divine nature, also called the Logos, has always existed, and only the composite Christ has two natures. Okay, three things. But the New Testament only mentions one unique Son of God, Jesus the Christ, and he is explicitly a man, as we've seen. The Catholic traditions have recognized that two or three Jesuses will never fit with the New Testament, so they take measures to reduce the number of selves. In so doing, disastrously, they remove the man from the theory. One way to reduce the number of selves, now ruled out as Apollinarianism, or the God and Abad heresy, says that this divine person simply obtained a human body from Mary. Whereas a human being consists of body and soul, this seemingly man-like being consists of an eternal divine person and a human body. The reason this is considered heresy is that it doesn't feature any real man, but only a being who might be mistaken for a man, a divine person piloting a human body. 
A more popular way to try to get the number of suns back down to one is to say that because of the mysterious union between the natures, the human nature, understood as a composite of a human type of body and a human type of soul, fails to be a human being that is a human self, just in this one case. Again, the man, the human self, disappears. Why think that an eternal divine person, the divine nature here, somehow operating through a human type of body and a human type of soul would constitute a real human being? If a demon could somehow deactivate your soul so that it no longer formed a human person together with your body, and the demon proceeded to pilot around your body and soul, that demon would not thereby turn into a real human. It'd just be a demon puppeteering a human soul and body. So why think that a God or an eternal divine person acting in the world somehow using a human body and soul would be a real man? Let's set aside this hypothesized divine nature and this imagined composite two-natured Christ and stick with the human Jesus of the Bible. The other option is to say that the two natures are the defining essential features, divinity and humanity. Okay, so now the natures aren't things or beings, they're just properties or features. This is not clearly taught anywhere in Christian scripture. Still, I will address long-standing Catholic traditions of arguing that such a claim about Jesus is assumed or implicitly asserted in scripture. Let me grant for the sake of argument that there are such things as natures, and so that any human by definition has human nature. On these assumptions, then, when the Bible says that Jesus is a man, it would be implying that he has human nature. But why think the Bible teaches Jesus to also have divine nature? The most obvious and straightforward way of proving this would be to list out all the qualities which are included in divine nature, then show that the Bible teaches Jesus to have each of these qualities. But it's unclear exactly which and how many qualities this would be. Worse, for some divine qualities, The Bible straightforwardly implies that Jesus lacks them, qualities including essential omniscience, essential immortality, and essential untemptability. And other qualities most Christian theologians ascribe to God are not mentioned in connection with Jesus. There aren't even passages that sound like they're attributing aseity or necessary existence or essential omnipotence or essential omnipresence to him. So there aren't even passages to argue about. More creativity is called for, and human speculations are nothing if not creative. The traditional way of deriving the deity of Christ from the Bible is to fasten on some actual New Testament statement and then infer by means of a general assumption that Jesus, therefore, must have divine nature. Such arguments are valid, which means that if one and two are true, then three would also be true. The problem with such arguments is premise two, which on close inspection is seen to be a mere human tradition, which is supported neither by reason nor by biblical revelation. Perhaps the most popular argument of this type is, one, Jesus is appropriately referred to as God. Two, only a being with divine nature could be appropriately referred to as God. Three, conclusion, therefore Jesus has divine nature. According to the Bible, the second premise here is false. In John 10, Jesus himself points out that beings other than God can be called gods. And Psalm 45, quoted in Hebrews 1, addresses a human king with the words, Your throne, O God, endures forever. Yet it goes on to say that God, your God, has anointed you. Right, so this one who's called God has a God over him in the original context, a uh, king. The one over him is obviously the unique God, the Lord. 
So no, being appropriately called God doesn't require being a God or having a divine nature. Suddenly all the learned wrangling about whether or not about half a dozen New Testament verses refer to Jesus as God, theos in the New Testament, becomes less important. The Bible insists that there is only one God, but it denies that only one being can be properly referred to or addressed as God or as a God. Again, Jesus is worshipped in the New Testament. So we have this argument. Jesus is worthy of worship. Two, only a being with divine nature is worthy of worship. Three, therefore Jesus has divine nature. As with other arguments of this sort, the conclusion does follow from the premises, but there's no biblical support for premise two. The risen and exalted Jesus is worshipped in addition to God. This is clearly portrayed in the visions of Revelation 4 and 5. Unlike God in chapter 4, Jesus is not worshipped because he's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, who created all things. Rather, Jesus is praised because you were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe. In the New Testament, we honor Jesus because of his service to us and to his and our God, not because he has divine nature. And Paul says that worship given to the exalted Jesus is to the glory of God the Father. To honor Jesus is to honor the one who sent him. In contrast, we don't think that honor given to God passes along to someone else who is above him. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the rest of my opening statement. But how could the death of a mere man be a once and for all sacrifice for human sin? Many have argued that Jesus, by his death, provided a once and for all atoning sacrifice, right? Only being with divine nature could do that. Here again, all Christians agree on one, but the New Testament offers no support whatever for two. It never assumes, implies, or asserts that to die for our sins, Jesus had to have divine nature. But isn't Jesus' divine nature shown by his involvement in creation? Here again, premise one can be challenged on exegetical grounds. But even if you think the Bible teaches one, the Bible offers no support whatever for premise two. Nor is premise two self-evident. Divinity, full divinity, requires eternality, either timelessness or existing at all times. But notice that being the next-to-last source of the cosmos doesn't obviously require eternity in either sense. This is why early Logos speculators like Justin Martyr, Tatian, Athenagoras, Theophilus, and Tertullian affirmed that God created through the Logos, but they thought that God brought the Logos into existence for this purpose prior to creation. In monotheism, being the creator is being the unique and ultimate source of the cosmos, not just a source of it. 
But then there is no support in the alleged Jesus was evolved in creation passages for Jesus being divine in the sense that the unique God is divine. Citing such passages in this debate would be a waste of time. These deity of Christ arguments are legion, and I can't address them all now. But we should notice that in many cases, the Bible implies the falsity of premise two, not just that two lacks support, but that two is contradicted by the Bible. Only a being with divine nature can forgive sins, not according to the Bible. Only a being with divine nature can be called the one Lord, not according to the Bible. A Christian has to let the Bible trump traditional speculations about Jesus. That they are not taught in scripture is enough for a Protestant to set aside two natures theories about Jesus. But such theories also bristle with conceptual problems. Like other unsuccessful human speculations, they create at least as many problems as they're supposed to solve. These theories make Jesus into an impossible object, something which in principle can't exist like a square triangle. Here are four contradictions generated by this theory that Jesus has both divine and human nature when considered together with the Bible and with Christian theology. First contradiction, God is, as fully divine, supposed to be essentially omniscient. But Jesus explicitly said that the Father knew something that Jesus did not, thereby showing himself not to be essentially omniscient. But no one can be and not be essentially omniscient. Second, A fully divine being, which is essentially all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good, and self-sufficient, in principle can't be tempted. To do something, you have to have a motive to do it. But it's impossible that a being like that should come to view a bad action as choice-worthy. In contrast, any human is, in principle, capable of being limited in power, knowledge, or goodness. And any human is dependent for his or her flourishing on many outside factors, right? Food, shelter, temperature. Thus, any human can, in principle, be tempted. So being divine entails the impossibility of being tempted, and being human entails the possibility of being tempted. Thus, no being could be both human and divine. Third contradiction. Being a human implies being a creature, deriving directly or indirectly from God's act of creation. Being divine implies the impossibility of having been created by anything. Contradiction four, being divine seems to imply the impossibility of dying, as God's life doesn't depend on anything that might be taken away. But in principle, any human can die. And of course, we know that this man did die, which shows that he was not essentially immortal, although he has since been raised to immortality. There's also a problem about how many gods there are, if you hold a two-natures theory. Remember that a thing with a divine nature is just by definition a god, just like a thing with human nature is by definition a human being. So I would ask my opponent whether this god, which is Jesus, is the same god as the Father or a different god. If there are two gods in this scheme, Mr. Date can explain why this should still count as monotheism. And if he says that the Father and the Son are the same God, how is this compatible with the Father and the Son being different from one another? Being the same God requires being numerically the same being. But that requires that they never differ in any way. But if they ever have differed, this proves they're not the same being, not the same thing, so they can't be the same God. Again, we all know that the Father and Son have differed. Numerically distinct beings can't be the same God, and we should dismiss this suggestion as nonsense, and we should be afraid to attribute nonsense like that to the authors of the Bible. 
Further, in the New Testament, the Father is Jesus' God. No one can literally be the God over himself. It is self-evident that for any X and any Y, if X is the God over Y, then X and Y are not the same God. And in a monotheistic religion, by definition, God is not subject to any God. If my opponent thinks that the Father and the Son are the same God, let him explain how this one God can be subject to himself and also the God over himself. In conclusion, the New Testament authors never wrestle with conceptual problems like these because they did not believe that Jesus has two natures. The Bible doesn't contain any two natures Christology, and any such theory is only inferred using dubious arguments from things the Bible actually says. The New Testament is clear and explicit that someone other than Jesus is the only God. Jesus is never presented as a God or as the God by any New Testament author, and the central emphatic message about Jesus that all New Testament books proclaim is that he is God's unique human son, his Messiah, his special servant, the descendant of David and prophet like Moses, chosen to redeem his human brothers and sisters, who died and was raised, who now rules under God, and who will return to the earth to literally rule God's kingdom here and to serve as God's appointed judge of his fellow humans. Now, if this sounds like a mere man to you, you should have your head examined. The apostles did not teach that only one with a divine nature could play this astounding role of Messiah, and we should let go of these problematic and unscriptural speculations They only weigh down and hinder the good news, the simple message we see preached for the first time by Peter in Acts 2. When I get to my closing statement, I'll talk about some practical reasons why I think this issue matters. I just gave you reasons why you should read the Bible as saying that Jesus is a man and why you should understand the Bible to be implicitly denying that he's a God. He's under a God. He worships God. He prays to God. In my closing statement, I'll talk about things like how this affects whether or not we can take Jesus as an example, whether or not we think there are additional mediators that are needed. Jesus is just God himself, then it sounds like now we need another mediator, maybe Mary, maybe my favorite saint or something like this. Another thing to consider is how far has the gospel gotten in the members of the second greatest religion in the world? Second greatest religion in the world in terms of numbers is Islam, and Christianity has basically not made a dent in that religion since it came into existence in the 600s AD. It's like an inoculation against the gospel, at least the gospel as normally understood. I suggest that you might make better headway with them if you actually just stuck to the New Testament gospel about the one God and the one Lord, and the one Lord is an exalted man. Like the Jews of first century Jerusalem, I think they can hear the simple message that we see preached in Acts 2, as opposed to the dark sayings of bishops, a message which really hasn't penetrated their ranks, and really they don't have any patience for all the sophisticated parsing and explaining that has to go along with that. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Chris Date's opening statement for the negative side.
quick word of thanks uh, before I get started. I am truly honored and humbled that somebody as esteemed as Dr. Tuggy would be willing to engage me in this topic and debate. It means the world to me, uh, and I can't thank him enough. Uh, so thank you for that. Many others I'd like to thank, but I've got an awful lot of material to cover, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. Now, Christian theology and biblical exegesis ought not to be done in a historical vacuum. The Holy Spirit has been in operation within the church from the beginning. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and we ought to be doing our exegesis and theology with the early testimony of those giants in mind. And so I'd like to begin my case for a negative answer to tonight's debate question by arguing that Christians have identified Jesus as Yahweh, the one God of Israel, from the beginning. His deity and his incarnation have always been definitional of Christianity. You can see this, for example, in the early ecumenical creeds, ecumenical meaning that all the major branches of Christendom have agreed to them. The Nicene Creed from the early fourth century, for example, says that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, that he was begotten, not made, and that by him all things were made in heaven and on earth. A hundred years later, the Chalcedonian Creed says that the church unanimously teaches that Jesus Christ is co-essential with the Father and acknowledged in two natures in one person. Now, Dr. Tuggy believes, if I understand him correctly, that these represent intermediate stages in a process of Christological development that only later, after these creeds, finally culminated in the doctrines of Trinity and Incarnation that are familiar to Christians today. By contrast, he argues that early writers tell you in no uncertain terms that the one true God, God in the deepest sense of the term, is the Father. Now, it is true that early writers tell you something in no uncertain terms, but that's not it. What they tell you in no uncertain terms is that they believed Jesus is incarnate Yahweh. Ignatius of Antioch, writing in the very early uh, 2nd century, calls Jesus the eternal, the invisible, who became visible for our sake, the impalpable, the impassable, who suffered for our sake. Fifty years later, Justin Martyr writes that Christ is called both God and Lord of hosts, that he was with Moses and Aaron and spoke to them in the pillar of the cloud. Of course, he's referring to Yahweh's speech from the pillar of the cloud. And then shortly thereafter, Melito of Sardis says that he who is creator together with the Father, he that hung up the earth in space, was himself hanged up. He that fixed the heavens was fixed with nails, God put to death. Dale Tuggy argues that for Irenaeus, it couldn't be clearer. The one true God is not the Trinity, not a triune God, but rather the Father of Jesus. And he bases this, if I understand him correctly, on Book 3, Chapter 9 of Against Heresies, in which Irenaeus says the Father is the only God and Lord. But Chapter 9 comes after Chapter 6, in which Irenaeus says that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and the apostles would never have named as God definitely and absolutely somebody unless he is truly God. And then in that very same chapter, he says that's precisely what the Holy Spirit does in Psalm 45, 6, designating both of them, both Son and Father, by that name of God, definitely and absolutely. So Irenaeus believed that Jesus was incarnate Yahweh. Tertullian is another writer about whom Dr. Tuggy writes, and Dr. Tuggy argues that for Tertullian, the one eternal God isn't the Trinity, but rather the Father himself. He never describes, mentions, or implies the existence of a tripersonal God. Now, I believe this is demonstrably false. This is against Praxius toward the end of it, in which Tertullian says the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are both believed in as three and as making one only God. In fact, he begins his treatise against Praxius by calling it a heresy to think the only way you can believe in one only God is to believe the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the same person. As far as I can tell, he's explicitly arguing for a tripersonal God. One other early writer about whom Dr. Tuggy writes is Theophilus, and Dr. Tuggy believes that Theophilus thinks God himself is the oldest and primary founding member of the threesome that is God, his wisdom, and his word. But actually what Theophilus says is that God, having his own word internal within himself, begat him. 
The Greek word translated having is uh, present tense participle, and the word begat translates an aorist tense indicative. Now what this means is that, according to Theophilus, at the time that God begat the word, the word was already in him. This isn't the language of creation, this is the language of coming forth, of begetting. In fact, he goes on to say that God emitted the word before all things, the Greek word exerugamai being used in the Septuagint to refer to a river overflowing with frogs, treasures overflowing with riches, and so forth. Again, this is something pre-existent coming out. This is not the language of creation. So how should we answer tonight's debate question then? Is Jesus human and not divine? Well, if we want to take seriously those early Christians through whom the Holy Spirit was at work, who authored the ecumenical creeds, and if we want to take seriously the writings of these early fathers whose paintings are here before you, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Melito of Sardis, Irenaeus of Lyon, Tertullian, and Theophilus, we must answer tonight's debate question, no. Jesus is human and divine. Now, I want to turn at this point to Scripture. This is, of course, what ultimately matters. And here I want to look at just a few passages in Scripture in a great level of detail, rather than just shoot a whole bunch of verses in your direction. And here I'm going to argue that the New Testament unmistakably identifies Jesus as the pre-existent creator and God of Israel, who, though existing in the form of God, became a man to serve those from whom he deserves service. And I'm going to begin with Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, in which Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Dr. Tuggy correctly observes that many interpreters see in this passage a teaching about the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity becoming a human while not ceasing to be divine. And he acknowledges that if this is in fact what Paul is teaching, then it would single-handedly refute theories like Dr. Tuggy's theory on which the idea of incarnation developed over many decades or centuries. Uh, So given that Dr. Tuggy acknowledges the significance of this passage, I'm going to spend some time with it and demonstrate, I hope, that it does in fact single-handedly refute such theories. So what Paul says is that Jesus was in the form of God, and form translates the Greek word marphe. Now Dr. Tuggy believes, if I've understood him correctly, what Paul is doing is contrasting Jesus with Adam. And Dr. Tuggy asks, was Adam in the form of God? Yes. The Bible says that Adam and Eve were made in God's image and likeness. And although the Septuagint translators, that is the translators of Old Testament Hebrew into Koine Greek just a few, you know, a couple of centuries before the New Testament, although they don't use the Greek word marphe in translating Genesis 1, which says that human beings were made in the image and likeness of God, although they don't use that word, they might have. Well, I don't think that's true. Throughout the Septuagint, throughout Philo, and throughout the New Testament, the Greek word most commonly used to say that human beings are in the image of God is the Greek word akon. Occasionally, the word likeness is used as well. That's homoiosis. And by my count, fallible as I am, the Septuagint features these words six times. Philo features them some 30 times at least, and, and I have a limited library. And the New Testament uses these words five times. Significantly, of those five times, Paul, the author of the passage we're looking at now, uses these words. 41 times total throughout this literature. Here's how many times, by my count, marfe is used to say that human beings are in the image or likeness or or form of God. Zero. Nowhere in the Septuagint, nowhere in Philo, nowhere in the New Testament have I been able to find any writer who says that human beings are in the form of God using the Greek word marfe. And so I think Ben Witherington is right when he observes that these two words simply are not synonymous, a cone meaning image and marfe using form. 
Now, Paul goes on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality translates a Greek word, esos. And Dr. Tuggy has argued that Paul is contrasting Jesus, the second Adam, with the first Adam, who, made in the form of God, tried to get a kind of equality with God. Now, we've already seen that no Adam was not made in the form of God, but did he try to get equality with God? Not according to the translators of the Septuagint. The Greek word hos is a likeness. It's it's similarity. It's not a language of equality. Um, Adam did indeed try to become like God in a certain way, but as far as I can tell, nobody ever says in, in, the, in the relevant literature that Adam tried to become equal to God. And so Gordon Fee is right when he observes that this Adamic interpretation of Philippians 2, it offers an intriguing analogy, but there's not a single linguistic parallel to the Genesis narrative that, that Dr. Tuggy points to in interpreting this passage. So if Paul is not contrasting Jesus with Adam, what is he doing? Well, Paul goes on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the Greek word harpagmas is typically translated in English translations in such a way as to indicate that Jesus didn't have something and he refused to try and reach out and grab it. But that's not actually what's going on here. What we have in the Greek is what's called an object complement construction. Daniel Wallace explains that in a construction like this, one accusative noun is the direct object of the verb, and the other one predicates or affirms something about that direct object. The relationship then between the direct object and the object complement is something like an equal sign. Jesus did not count equality with God to be something. What did he not count equality with God to be? Harpagmas. Now, Roy Hoover has gone through relevant comparable literature and has observed that this is an idiomatic expression. It's an idiom referring to something already present and at one's disposal. The question is whether or not one chooses to exploit something. So he surveys Eusebius and he surveys Heliodorus and he surveys Isidore Pelusium and he finds everywhere where this noun or its synonym harpagma is the object complement in a construction like this where the verb is one of consideration or regarding or seeing, it always means something like an advantage to exploit. People either choose to exploit it or not. And so he says that a translation appropriate to this context and confirmed by comparable usage elsewhere is Jesus did not regard being equal with God as something to take advantage of. And this really shouldn't come as a surprise because as Moisa Silva explains, we have the correspondence right here of Marfetheu, that's form of God, with Isatheo, that is equality with God, the correspondence emphasizing that being in the form of God is equivalent to being equal with God. And of course, we've already seen Paul says Jesus was in the form of God. But there's more. Paul says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The word translated emptied himself is is an indicative verb, whereas taking and being born are participles, specifically participles of means. And Daniel Wallace explains that a participle of means indicates the means by which the action of a finite verb is accomplished. It makes more explicit what the author intended to convey with the verb. So what this means is that Jesus emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. The Greek word ginomai doesn't literally mean being born, but that is how it's frequently used in the New Testament to describe Jesus' human descent. Paul himself, the author of the passage we're looking at here, says in Romans 1.3 that God's son was descended, ginomai, from David. And he says in Galatians 4.4 that God sent forth his son, born, ginomai, of woman, born, ginomai, under the law. And how is he born? In the likeness of men. The Greek word homoioma being used by Paul elsewhere in Romans 8.3 to say that God sent his own son in the homoioma, the likeness of sinful flesh. You see, Paul is very clearly here saying that the way that Jesus emptied himself, having already at the time existing, existed in the form of God and being equal with God, the way he emptied himself is by becoming a man. This is really very clear. But there's more. 
Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God and did not count being. Both of those are present tense verbs, the first one a participle, the second one an indicative. Equal with God, an advantage to use, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Taking and born are both aorist tense participles. What is the significance of these different tenses? Well, G. Walter Hansen explains that the present tense participle existing speaks of continuous existence in the form of God, but the aorist participle becoming speaks of an entrance into existence like that of human beings. So what we have here when we put all the pieces together in Paul's mind is something like a timeline stretching from the past into the future. And Paul conceives of Jesus pre-existing in God's form being equal to God throughout this timeline. Then, to use the language of philosophers, at T1, uh, Jesus empties himself by being born in the likeness of men. And from that point onward, he is obedient to the point of T2, which is his death. And of course, he continues to go beyond that after his resurrection. So this, to me, very clearly seems to be a case of the hypostatic union in Jesus' person between Jesus' eternal divine nature and, beginning with the incarnation, his human nature. And as far as I can tell, Dr. Tuggy's interpretation of this passage simply does not hold up under scrutiny, and so I would encourage him to offer an explanation of this passage in his rebuttal. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the rest of Mr. Date's opening statement. I'm going to return to this passage a little bit later, but for now, I want to move on to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, in which the author says that God speaks by Jesus, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, among other things, what is significant about this is that the author says that through the Son, God created the world. But the author of Hebrews is familiar with the Old Testament, including Isaiah 44, 24, in which it's Yahweh alone who made all things. Yahweh alone who stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by himself. Now, Dr. Tuggy rightly observes that the words translated the world are more literally translated the ages. And he thinks that you can take that to be the new age initiated by Christ and what's going to come, rather than the created universe that you might think of when you think of Genesis. But there are at least three reasons for rejecting this interpretation. Firstly, this Greek word poieo, translated created, is used by the author of Hebrews later in chapter 12, verses 26 and 27 to speak of the earth and the heavens being made, the Genesis creation there. In fact, all throughout the relevant literature, poieo is used to describe the creation of the heaven and earth. Acts 17, 49 to 50, 2 Maccabees 7, 28, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Tobit, Judith, Baruch, all over the relevant literature, poieo is used to describe the Genesis creation of the heavens and the earth. A second reason to reject Dr. Tuggy's interpretation is because the author of Hebrews himself uses this phrase, the ages, later in chapter 11, verse 3, to say that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the author of Hebrews, when he's talking about the ages in this kind of language, is talking about the creation of the universe. 
But even if, if we want to concede that he's talking about some series of ages, the author of Hebrews has in mind a series of ages that stretches not only into the future, but also into the past. He says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. So here you see past ages and a present age. And then he speaks in chapter 9, verse 26, of the powers of the age to come. So here you've got age of the future. And according to the author of Hebrews, as we've seen, through Jesus, through the Son, God created all of these ages. I don't think it can be any clearer. One other passage I want to look at is Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. What relevance does this have to the discussion? Well, as Jonathan Rowlands observes, bird imagery in the ancient Near East, when it's protective bird imagery of, of gathering children under its wings, it always concerns a deity. And the most common example in ancient Near Eastern iconography is the winged sun disk. You can see this in this Gilgamesh relief from the 9th century BC, that winged sun disk under whose wings are those, I'm guessing they're satyrs, and uh, I'm guessing that's Gilgamesh directly under it. That's a representation of deity. These are stamp seals from Samaria and Shechem that also feature the winged sun disk from after the 9th century BC. And this is a clay bulla from the 8th or 7th century BC found near the Temple Mount, reading belonging to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and it features that winged sun disk. That's Yahweh, a representation of him in iconography. But it's not only in ancient Near Eastern iconography that the protective bird imagery is used. It's also used in the Hebrew Bible. Dr. Rollins goes on to say every instance of protective bird imagery in the Hebrew Bible refers to Yahweh's protection of Israel. Just one example I'll read is Deuteronomy 32, 11 to 12. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, Yahweh alone guided him. It's not only here, though. It's in Ruth 2, 12. It's in Psalms 17, 8, and 9, 36, and 7, 57, 1, 61, 4, 63, 7, 91, 4. It's all over the place. And Jesus here uses this language of himself when nobody else in the ancient Near East would have done so. In fact, when he leaves the temple, he tells them both in Matthew and in the parallel in Luke, when he leaves the temple and tells the people, I'm leaving the temple to you desolate, forsaken, using the exact same language used in Jeremiah to describe Yahweh leaving his temple desolate and forsaken. So the reality here is, as Simon Gathercole puts it, Matthew portrays Christ as having been intimately involved in the entire duration of Israel's history, as one who has historically been calling Israel, albeit unsuccessfully, to repentance. So how should we answer tonight's debate question? Is Jesus human and not divine? Well, if we're going to believe what Paul says, if we're going to believe what the author of Hebrews says, if we're going to believe what Matthew and indeed Jesus himself say, we must answer tonight's debate question, no, Jesus is human and divine. Now, I want to turn from exegesis to theology or possibly philosophy, however you want to put it. And that last passage we just looked at in which Jesus weeps over Jerusalem is a good transition into this part of my presentation because here I want to argue from the character of God and of Jesus. Specifically, I'm going to argue here that if Jesus is not God, he is more loving than even his unitary God who unjustly subjects a third party to death in place of humanity. But the Jesus of scripture in his incarnation is the very expression of the love of God who dies in humankind's place himself. I base this largely on John 15, 13, in which Jesus himself says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Of course, we know Jesus went on to do just that. So Jesus has committed the greatest act of love possible. By contrast, this is what Dr. Tuggy thinks about God's love. God showed you how much he loves you by sending Jesus to sacrifice his human life for you something he could not do himself being immortal. We'll come back to that a little bit later. 
Dr. Michael Brown, when he debated Dr. Tuggy a few months ago, he rightly observed that the idea that a glorified man died for our sins is hardly a demonstration of the immeasurable love of God. By contrast, in Christianity, when God sent his son to pay for our crimes, he was giving of his very self. And so the truth is, as Fred Sanders puts it, the gospel is that God is God for us. He gives us himself to be our salvation. He does not give us something that makes us blessed. He blesses us by giving us himself. Now, I also want to make the argument, as Glenn Peoples here in in this quote argues, that for God to take a third party and subject him to death as an atoning sacrifice is unjust because it would be akin to me robbing a third party in order to wipe your debt to me rather than absorbing the loss myself. But if the Father and Son are equally the one true God, as historic Christianity posits, then God absorbs the loss and voluntarily takes the consequences of humankind's sin when the incarnate Son dies on the cross for you and for me. And that's what allows Christians to respond to charges like that of Steve Chalk, that Jesus is the hapless victim of cosmic child abuse. You see, these kinds of charges, the reason that they're wrong is because they neglect that the death of Christ is not that of a third party. It is the self-substitution of God. So how should we answer tonight's debate question, is Jesus human and not divine? We must answer it, no. Jesus is human and divine. Now I want to turn from the character of God and of Jesus to what that character inspires in us. And here what I'm going to argue is that more beautiful and inspiring than an allegedly unitary God of Jesus is the God of the Bible, who, like a heroic and selfless father, sacrificed his own life for his creatures, thereby serving as the greatest model of love and humility imaginable. Now, just to be clear, this is not to confuse the Son with the Father. Being equally the one creator God, both Father and Son are like a father or fathers to humankind. You can see this in passages like Malachi 2.10, which asks, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Or Acts 17.24-28, which says the God who made the world and everything in it is actually not that far from each one of us, for we are indeed his offspring. You see, if Jesus is in fact the creator God, Yahweh, then he is like a father to humanity. Now, with that in mind, I want to introduce you to a few people who have featured in news stories over recent years. This is Tom Vanderwood. He found his son drowning in a septic tank. So you know what his dad did? He jumped into the septic tank, lifted his son up to safety, and then he died in that septic tank. This is Demetrius Johnson. He, his house caught on fire, and he rushed almost all of his family out to safety, and then he rushed back in to save that little boy in that picture. And all he was able to do with what little time he had remaining was put that little boy in a closet where the child survived until firefighters came and rescued him. Demetrius, however, perished in those flames. This is Justin McCary. He and his daughter were walking down some railroad tracks when a train began to bear down on them, and all he had time to do was to push his daughter out of the way, and then he was struck by that train and died. This is Anthony Burgess. His daughter was in a car that began rolling backward into a body of water. He jumped into the water, was able to get his daughter to safety, but he drowned in that body of water. What makes these stories and countless others like them so compelling and so inspiring and indeed so beautiful is that it's not some third party that sacrifices him or herself in order to save the child whose life is in danger. It's their very father's. And this is an apt picture of historic Christianity in which God the Son himself becomes a man to suffer an atoning death in place of his creatures, their creator-creation relationship likened in scripture to the relationship between father and children. By contrast, in non-oneness forms of Unitarianism, the creator-father instead creates a third party, an exclusively human being, to die in the place of other human beings. And you can actually see the intent of the incarnation and self-sacrifice of God intended to inspire people in this way in the passage we looked at before, Philippians 2. Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that is equal with God, emptied himself 
James White rightly asks, do we regularly honor as humble those who hold an inferior position and do not seek to usurp the rights of someone in a superior position? Well, of course we don't. That's not humility. That's common sense. But if humility consists of having privileges and laying those privileges aside in service to others, can we think of any example of humility more thrilling, more challenging, or more clear than this one? And the answer is no. And so Gordon Fee is right when he says that in this passage, Paul here not only reveals the character of God, but from the perspective of the present context also reveals what it means for us to be created in God's image and to bear his likeness and have his mindset. It means that we as God's divine image bearers, like him, take the role of the slave for the sake of others. So how should we answer tonight's debate question? Is Jesus human and not divine? We must answer it no. Jesus is human and divine. Now, I mentioned a moment ago oneness forms of Unitarianism. I'm not a oneness Unitarian, and I don't want you to be either, but I think that the case I've offered for Christ's deity is unarguable. I don't think it's going to be able to be argued against. So I want to dissuade you from becoming a oneness Unitarian, but before I do, let me remind you of the four points I've made so far. Firstly, the deity and incarnation of Christ have been definitional of Christianity from the beginning. Number two, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is incarnate God. Number three, Jesus is the very expression of the love of God who suffers an atoning death for us, and number four, God's self-sacrifice maximally inspires doing likewise. At this point, then, I want to argue that God transcends all creation, and it shouldn't surprise us that his nature cannot be fully grasped, having no human analog. Still, the doctrines of Trinity and Incarnation are coherent and intelligible. Of course, Dr. Tuggy disagrees. He says that if one claims the Father is God and the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son, if the word is means equals, if it's numerical identity, then this is an inconsistent set of claims. And I'm actually inclined to think he's right, but these three statements are not all statements of numerical identity. The first two, the Father is the one true God, the Son is the one true God, these are comparing persons as the subject to a being as the predicate. So these are not statements of numerical identity. But the third, the Father is not the Son, these are in fact comparing a person to another person. It is a statement of numerical identity. The first two are, as Dr. Tuggy observed, something like shorthand or a placeholder for something a little more precise. Namely, the Father's being is the being of the one true God. The Son's being is the being of the one true God. The Father and the Son are not the same person. Now, this is intelligible. It is coherent. It's not self-contradictory, provided that person and being are not just synonyms. So here's how I understand person and being. Person is an I, a self, a rational subject of interpersonal relations. Being, as in my very being or one's very being, is the substance, in the case of God, it's spirit, or organic composite of substances, in the case of human beings, most Christians believe it's soul and body, in which a person subsists. Here's another way to put it, as Kenneth Baker does, the person is the possessor of being and the ultimate subject of all existence and activity, while being is that through which the person is and acts. Here's what I'm arguing. There exists only one divine being. There exist three divine persons, each of whose being is that one divine being. The Son is one of those divine persons, and the incarnate Son subsists both in the divine being and in his human being. Now, Dr. Tuggy assumes that, in principle, a person's being can't be shared by other persons or selves. Indeed, a person it just is a being, if I've understood countless occasions on which Dr. Tuggy has treated person as just some sort of synonym or special kind of being. For example, he says three persons as so many selves, that is to say, as three personal beings. But why assume these things? Well, perhaps Dr. Tuggy would answer, this concept of a personal being is built into the human species and is found without exception in all times and places in human history. And he's right. 
But humans are also universally temporal, finite, material, contingent, and, yes, unipersonal. God, however, we all know, is eternal, omnipresent, immaterial, self-existent, all things that none of us are. None of us are those things. So why could he not also be multipersonal? There's no reason for thinking otherwise. In fact, Dr. Tuggy himself admits that God is a great, wonderful, complicated reality, greater than we can adequately or fully understand. God can't, Dr. Tuggy says, be fully explained. And he's right. So I want to encourage you to do the same thing Dr. Tuggy encourages you to do. Don't shrink your idea of God down to human size. Better, you should re-examine your teachings about Jesus in light of what he and his apostles actually said. Well, I've shown you what the apostles and Jesus actually said. They consistently say that Jesus is incarnate Yahweh. And since it's not unintelligible to affirm his deity while at the same time affirming monotheism, we must answer tonight's debate question, no, Jesus is human and divine. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my rebuttal. I would like to thank Mr. Date for engaging with my work and for his interesting arguments. I agreed to debate him because I respect his humble, diligent, and courageous work in rethinking what is a truly biblical understanding of hell. But I must urge him also to rethink the biblical credentials of speculations about the deity of Christ. If such a teaching were essential, central, and crucial to the gospel, we should see this clearly taught throughout the New Testament. But as this debate has shown, no two natures doctrine is obviously contained in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus is not supposed to be God himself, but rather someone else who is explicitly a man. Unfortunately, Mr. Date's opening arguments do not make a strong case that Jesus is both human and divine. It makes me sad that Mr. Date prefers a myth about a self-sacrificing God to what the New Testament actually says. I don't think he fully appreciates the beauty of the New Testament narrative, one high point of which is just prior to Jesus' arrest when God wants Jesus to suffer this terrible death. But understandably, at that moment, the grieved and terrified Jesus does not want to go through with it. He asks to be excused, but he faithfully submits to his God. God declines to excuse him, and the story proceeds. God and his human son accomplished this effective sacrifice by cooperating together. It's not anything like cosmic child abuse. He's not a child for one thing, but he does it willingly for another. Mr. Date endorses the recent misguided cosmic child abuse objection to Jesus' atoning death and suggests that God would be unjust unless he himself were the sacrifice victim. But it makes no sense to criticize God for not doing something, which it is a contradiction to suppose that God does. I do not lightly claim that this is a contradiction. I will show that it is. So the first step in the argument is that God is essentially immortal. Second, if anyone is essentially immortal, it is not possible that he should die. 
Three, therefore, it is not possible that God dies. Step four, whatever is actual is also possible. Step five, God died. That's part of Mr. Date's gospel. It's not part of mine. It's not part of Paul's and the other writers of the, the New Testament. And so then it follows from four and five that it is possible that God dies because it happens. Now, steps three and six follow from what went before. But steps three and six are a contradiction. So something that went before has to be denied. Steps two and four here are self-evident, and they cannot be reasonably denied. So we must deny either one or five. This argument presents us with a sharp dilemma. Either agree with scripture that God is essentially immortal and disagree with Mr. Date's touching story about God dying or vice versa. I urge you to side with scripture. And I urge Mr. Date to reconsider with fear and trembling his endorsement of this incoherent myth of the self-sacrificing mortal God. The Son of God, a mediator and high priest, is necessarily a third party between us and our God. That's what a mediator is. The explicit and clear New Testament gospel is not that God died for us, but rather that he sent his human son to die for us, and we dare not change this message. My opponent's argument from bird imagery, that's a new one for me. Uh, it goes something like this. Every instance of protective bird imagery in the Hebrew Bible refers to God's protection of Israel. Second, Jesus said, how often have I desired to gather Jerusalem's children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Therefore, Jesus is God. That's the conclusion that's supposed to be following from those two steps. But the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. A person can consistently agree with one and two and still deny three. And it also doesn't follow that Jesus has a divine nature. And it also doesn't follow that he was involved in all of Israel's history. I mean, even if Simon Gathercole says it, it can still be a wild overreading of that passage. These premises do nothing whatever to support such conclusions. You don't need to be God himself to use such imagery. And it makes sense for the Messiah, who's destined to be king of the Jews, to express a sentiment like that, that he wishes he could gather the children of Jerusalem. Someday he will. Now, about early theology, Mr. Date follows what's unfortunately a common practice among apologists of cherry-picking a few first-century texts in which Jesus is called God and uh, which kind of sort of sound Trinitarian. From Tertullian, he quotes two passages from the outdated and less accurate 19th century translation, one of which, in my view, shows a clear Trinitarian bias on the part of the translators. He misunderstands both, and he doesn't tell you about other texts I discuss in my published article, where Tertullian clearly asserts that the Father is older and nobler than the Son, that the Son was created and born before the Genesis creation, and that the Son is composed only of a portion of the material divine substance, which makes him less than fully divine for Tertullian. He thinks God is material, but not made out of the ordinary sort of matter. And so uh, he says a portion less than the whole comes to compose the word, the logos of John 1 before creation. So for Tertullian, this pre-existing word is not eternal. Uh, he's also not as noble as God, and he's not as divine as God is. For Tertullian, as with the other Logos theorists, Jesus is the incarnation not of the one God, but rather the incarnation of this lesser divine being. All of these second and third century theologians, except the ones historians call modalistic monarchians, would have denounced as confused heresy the claim that Jesus, or the Word, is the one true God. And they also mock the idea that God was crucified, calling that patroposianism. 
These writers, second and third century famous theologians, make clear in various ways that Jesus or the Word is not fully divine, not divine in the way that the one God is divine. I'm not going to talk about all of the authors that Mr. Date brought up. Maybe I'll address more in the book version. I'm going to focus on Justin for a minute, the famous Justin Martyr. So Justin is clear that the Word is another God and Lord under the Creator of all things, that is, under the one God, the Father. Justin tells us that the one who appeared to the patriarchs, this is supposed to be the pre-human Jesus, is called God, and he says, is distinct from God the Creator. Distinct, that is, in number, but not in mind. In other words, there are two beings here, two entities, God and this other, and those two are in agreement with one another. Yet, as with other second century authors, he freely calls both of them God. They just use the word God more loosely, these Gentile authors, than the authors of the New Testament or the Old Testament. Justin says that in addition to worshiping the maker of the universe, that is, God the Father and Master of all, in his words, He says, we worship him, Jesus, rationally, having learned that he is the son of the true God himself and holding him in the second place and the prophetic spirit in the third rank. Here is a theology where the one God is the greatest being, his son is second greatest, and his spirit is the third greatest, and they are worshiped with these ranks in mind. It's a Christian triad, one to compete with triads proposed by contemporary Platonists. Notice, though, that no tripersonal God has been mentioned. To the contrary, the one God is the Father. Like other sophisticates of his day, influenced by Plato, Justin thinks that the one God is too transcendent to create the cosmos directly, or to deal directly with the cosmos after it's created. He thinks God needs an intermediary as a go-between, sort of shielding him from corruption by the material world. Thus, Justin says that no one with even the slightest intelligence would dare to assert that the creator of all things, that is the Father, left his super-celestial realms to make himself visible in a little spot on earth. So no, Justin doesn't think that Jesus is the one God incarnate. Rather, he thinks Jesus is the incarnation of a lesser divine being, a second God or another God, the Logos, the Word, which God brought into existence in order to create the cosmos through him. I could go on, but I will just say that deep and careful study of these works falsifies Mr. Date's claims that Christians have always identified Jesus as the one God of Israel, and that Jesus' deity, as understood in the 4th century and later creeds, has always been definitional to Christianity. He cites for support early creeds from 325 and from 451, Look, those are not early creeds. Mr. Dayton and I are not early Americans. And there's quite a bit of time that passed between the apostles and these people writing creeds in committees in 381 and in 481. So looking back, we collapsed time together. And we, oh, those guys are really early. But quite a lot had changed. Um, and if you're a Protestant and you look at them, they look very Catholic, kind of surprisingly so to us. Mr. Date focuses on a handful of New Testament texts to prove four claims, the pre-existence of Jesus, that Jesus is the one creator, that Jesus is the God of Israel, and so therefore divine, and that he became a man. To prove all of these claims, Mr. Date appeals mainly to texts in Philippians and Hebrews. He chooses to ignore a massive evidence that Jesus is not divine, much of which I presented in my opening statement, in the hope that he can just read his desired conclusions off of his chosen texts. But we need to focus more carefully on the issues at hand. 
We can set aside the issue of Jesus' alleged pre-human existence because proving Jesus' pre-existence does not prove his divinity, which is the subject of this debate. Also, we can lay aside his becoming a man. If he pre-existed and then became a man, that's very interesting, but it doesn't show that he's also divine. So the heart of our disagreement is really Mr. Date's two claims that Jesus is the one creator and that he is the God of Israel, which entails that he's divine in the way the one God is divine. He puts most of his emphasis on a famous portion of Philippians 2. If I had more time, I would both defend my Adam Christology reading of this text and also explain a different reading of this text that other Unitarian Christians prefer, on which Jesus is, like God, in power and authority, yet declines to exploit this status for his own benefit. Mr. Date's lexical and grammatical points really don't decide between these three readings. But for purposes of this debate, and maybe I'll say more in the longer book version, but for purposes of this debate tonight, it's enough to point out that even on my opponent's reading, this text assumes and implies that Jesus is not the God of Israel and that he is not fully divine. Here, Jesus is not God himself, but he's in the form of God, that is, somehow similar to him. And while clear New Testament teaching is that God is and can't fail to be immortal, this obedient servant of God dies, which shows that he's not divine in the way the one God is divine. If he's divine at all, it must be a lesser degree of divinity, which is consistent with being mortal. Verse 11 tells us that glory given to this servant after his exaltation, as it were, passes on to the God whom he served. Paul's exhortation here is that we, like Jesus, should serve God, even if it kills us, for God will reward us in the end, even as he did with his human son, Jesus. Some would argue that Paul attributes divine nature to Jesus by saying that he was in the form of God. Now, form, morphe in ancient philosophy, often does mean a kind essence, and Paul would then be saying that Jesus was divine. But it can also refer just to a temporary condition, and Paul uses that way in the very next verse when he says that Jesus took the form of a slave. A slave is not a defined essence in classical philosophy. The essence of any slave is going to be humanity. About Jesus being the creator, as Mr. Date notes, the Old Testament asserts that the one God created by himself. Creation is an intentional action done by a person or persons, but this passage makes clear that just one self, one person created. The New Testament calls this creator father. I would like to know whether Mr. Date accepts the absurd implication of his assertions that the father just is the son and vice versa, or whether he denies a premise in this argument. One, there is only one creator. Two, the father created. Three, the son created. And it follows from those that the father just is the son, that they're one and the same. My view is that you should deny three, because the New Testament doesn't explicitly or clearly teach that. When it comes to Hebrews 1, again, Mr. Day's lexical considerations are not decisive. If the author of Hebrews is, like Paul, willing to talk about Jesus' work as a new creation, of course, he's going to re-employ language, which is normally used to talk about the Genesis creation. The whole text assumes that Jesus is not fully divine and not God. That's why it argues that he's been made superior to the angels. About Mr. Day's views on the Father and the Son, they're not easy to discern, even though I'm used to talking about and discerning different such views, so maybe I'll ask about those in the mutual interrogation time. Thanks. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Date's rebuttal.
15 minutes is not enough time for either of us to fully rebut the volume of information each of us have presented in our opening statement. So I've tried to pick out the most salient points in Dr. Tuggy's opening presentation, and if I've missed anything critical, uh, of course, this hopefully we'll have a chance to discuss it in cross-examination and in listener or in audience Q&A. I want to respond, first of all, to a brief historical claim that Dr. Tuggy made in his opening presentation, when, in which I would argue that he misreads the Church Fathers by confusing categories, those categories being creation and begetting. He argues that early Logos speculators like Justin Martyr, Tatian, Athenagoras, Theophilus, and Tertullian thought that God brought the Logos into existence. But that's not actually the case. Justin Martyr calls the Word of God even God. And yes, he calls him the first begotten God, but he says God begat the Word before all creatures. Panton, ton ktismaton. This is all creatures. Therefore, by Justin's own admittance, Jesus is not of the category of creatures. And then he goes on to say that the word is himself, this God begotten. Tatian, he says the Lord of the universe had the Logos himself in him, subsisting in him, and then the Logos springs forth. He doesn't come forth in vain, does not render him deficient from whom he was taken. This is a language of something pre-existing coming forth. This is not the language of creation. In fact, in chapters uh, 20 and 21 of Address to the Greeks, Tatian encourages readers to follow the one God and says if you be healed by drugs, it behooves you to give testimony of the cure to God. And then in practically the very next breath says we announce that God was born in the form of a man. Athenagoras explicitly denies Dr. Tuggy's conclusion. He says that Jesus is the first product of the Father, not as having been brought into existence, for from the beginning God, who is the eternal mind, had the Logos in himself, but inasmuch as he came forth. So this may seem strange to us, but as Larry Hurtado explains, these explanations reflect the struggle to work out doctrinal formulations that can express in some coherent way this peculiar view of God as one and as yet somehow comprising the Father and Jesus. You may not like the way that they attempt to make sense of this view, but nevertheless that is their view, contrary to Dr. Tuggy's claims otherwise. So here I've argued that early Christians recognized the Bible teaches Jesus is incarnate Yahweh. They said the Son pre-existed in and with the Father and that he was begotten and came forth, but not that he was created. In fact, two of the authors that I just referred to, whom Dr. Tuggy cited in his opening, explicitly deny that he was created. But and rather that what they were doing was attempting to make sense of Jesus' divine identity in light of monotheism. Now I want to turn to Dr. Tuggy's exegetical claims. And here I'm going to argue that what Dr. Tuggy does is he begs the question. He assumes his conclusion and reads it into scripture. And this is actually a little ironic because he accused me in his opening of saying that my Christology would be based on reading between the lines, whereas his Christology will be based on reading the lines. Now, this just is empty rhetoric. It has literally no meaning whatsoever. So here, for example, is the passage I quoted from Hebrews 1. God speaks by Jesus through whom also he created the world. He is a radiance of the glory of God and yada, yada, yada. Dr. Tuggy reads between the lines. Well, ages, and, and not all the ages that the, that the author of Hebrews talks about, only the present and future ones. Here also is Colossians 1, verses 16 and 19, which says, by Jesus, all things were created, all things were created through him and for him. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here again, Dr. Tuggy reads between the lines. That is new creation, not creation in the Genesis sense, but new creation. Here's John 16, 28, in which Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Once again, Dr. Tuggy reads between the lines. In the first case, Jesus is speaking missionally, and in the second case, he's talking literally. How convenient. 
then he goes on to argue that the New Testament always and everywhere portrays Jesus as a real man, never as a God-man, never as God incarnate. I demonstrated that that's not true in Philippians 2, in which Paul says Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, an advantage to use, but emptied himself. And here Dr. Tuggy has to read between the lines, like Adam, even though no literature speaks in this way of Adam. Here's John 1, verses 1, 14, and 18. The word was God, became flesh, and dwelt among us, the only God who is at the Father's side. Once again, Dr. Tuggy reads between the lines. Nothing to see here, just personification of wisdom. And yes, he's the only God, but not God-God. He's some other kind of only God, I guess. Here's Psalm 92. Before mountains were made, the psalmist says, you are, speaking to Yahweh. And in John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. The Greek words translated were made and was is the Greek word ginomai in the aorist tense. And the Greek word translated are or am is the Greek word ami in the present tense. So it seems pretty clear that in the same way the psalmist says that before mountains were made, you were to God, to Yahweh. So likewise, Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. But Dr. Tuggy has to read between the lines. Yes, God, according to the psalmist, pre-exists mountains, but Jesus is just pre-planned by God. Who doesn't matter what the lexical similarity between these two words is. Just ignore that. Read your Unitarianism into the lines, between the lines of scripture. Now, Dr. Tuggy argues that the New Testament is, is explicit, that like you and me, Jesus has a God over him, the one God. But the monotheistic Jewish assumption is that the one true God is subject to no one. Here again, Dr. Tuggy assumes Unitarianism. As James White observes, this argument assumes that God could not enter into human form. If he did, would he be an atheist? Would incarnate God refuse to acknowledge those divine persons who had not entered into human existence? Well, of course he wouldn't. And yet when we see the Lord Jesus doing exactly what we'd expect God the Son incarnate to do, we find this being used as an argument against his deity. Unitarians simply have made up their minds already. Dr. Tuggy goes on to say that elsewhere, John has Jesus refer to the Father as the one who alone is God and as the only true God. Here's an example of one of the passages he's citing. John 17, 3. Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Yet again, Dr. Tuggy has to read between the lines. Since they're two beings, the Son can't also be the one true God. James White goes on to say, How else could Jesus make mention of the truth of monotheism if he's God the Son incarnate? Since he's not a separate God from the Father, how could his confession of the deity of the Father be taken as a denial of his own deity? That just does not make sense. Would Jesus deny the deity of the Father? Would he say that the Father is not the only true God? As the God-man, Jesus prayed to the one true God exactly as we Trinitarians expect. So contrary to Dr. Tuggy's claims to the contrary, he is the one who is reading Unitarianism into scripture between the lines. And his reading of Jesus speaking to the Father assumes Unitarianism and that God incarnate would behave like an atheist or a polytheist. Finally, I want to talk about the logical objections that Dr. Tuggy has to my position. He asks me whether this God, which is Jesus, is the same God as the God, the Father, or is he a different God? Answer, the same God. As I said in my opening presentation, there exists only one divine being and three divine persons, each of whose being is the one divine being. You see, the Father and Son both subsist in the only divine being, so they are equally the one true God. Then he says, if I say that the Father and the Son are the same God, as I've just done, how is this compatible with the Father and the Son being different from one another? Answer, they differ in person, not in being. They interpersonally relate to one another differently, but they each subsist in the only divine being. 
Now, when it comes to the law of non-contradiction, Dr. Tuggy argues that being the same God requires being numerically the same being, but that requires that they never differ in any way. And we'll come to the differences in particular in a moment. If they ever have differed in any way, that proves that they are not the same being. But this is why I observed in my opening that Dr. Tuggy just assumes that a person's being can't be shared by other persons or selves, and that a person just is some sort of being. They're practically synonymous, or at the very least, a person is a kind of being. I reject those assumptions, and can therefore affirm that the Father and Son are indeed numerically the same being, but they differ as persons. But one of the alleged contradictions in my view is that no one can both be and not be essentially omniscient, and then also being divine entails the impossibility of being tempted, and being human entails the possibility of being tempted. Now, I have far less training in, in philosophy than Dr. Tuggy does, so he'll be able to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but as Mark Foreman explains, the foundation for logic is the principle of non-contradiction, which states not only that something cannot both be and not be, but that it can't both be and not be at the same time and in the same sense. Keep those two qualifications in mind. So when it comes to the issue of God's omniscience versus Jesus' limitations in knowledge, or when it comes to God being untemptable and Jesus being tempted, I'm offering two possible solutions of others from among others as well, neither which aren't mutually exclusive. First is the doctrine of divine timelessness, and second is a two-minds view of the incarnation. John Feinberg explains what it means to be timeless. Something timelessly eternal lacks temporal location. It doesn't exist now or later. It doesn't exist before or after because it is outside of time. Now, John Feinberg denies divine timelessness, but it is a very historical view. It's, it's classic theology that God is timelessly eternal. Now, if the divine being is timeless, then outside of time, the son is omniscient and can't be tempted, but in time, he, being human, is limited in knowledge and can be tempted. He is not omniscient and limited or untemptable and tempted at the same time. Remember those two qualifications I mentioned of the law of non-contradiction? But the other possible solution I offered is the two minds view of incarnation. Thomas Morris explains that in this view, the divine mind of God the Son contained but was not contained by his earthly mind or range of consciousness. That is to say, there was what could be called an asymmetric accessing relation between the two. What this means, according to this view, is that the divine mind had full and direct access to earthly human experience resulting from the incarnation, but the earthly consciousness did not have that kind of full and direct access to the divine. So, number two, if the incarnate son has two minds, one divine and one human, and if the latter lacks access to the former, then Jesus can be limited in knowledge and can be tempted. He is not omniscient and limited or untemptable and tempted in the same sense. Mind you, I'm not endorsing either of these two possible solutions. There are, possi there are others as well to be considered. I'm just saying these both prove that there isn't a contradiction in the incarnation here. Next, Dr. Tuggy argues that being a human implies being a creature, but being divine implies the impossibility of having been created. To be a creature and to be uncreatable, these are logically contrary. But as I argued, the incarnate son subsists in both the divine being and in his human being. So Jesus is indeed both created as man and uncreatable as God, but not in the same sense. It simply is not a violation of the law of non-contradiction. Next, Dr. Tuggy says that being divine seems to imply the impossibility of dying. Any human, at least no glorified human, can die, and of course we know that Jesus did die, which shows that he is not essentially immortal. Here again, I'm going to offer two possible solutions that are not mutually exclusive and which do not exhaust all the possible answers to this conundrum. One is again the divine timelessness doctrine, and the other is the difference between divine and human death. 
Now, if the divine being is timeless in the way that I explained earlier, then outside of time, the son is indeed immortal, but in time, he, being human, is mortal and can therefore die. He is not immortal and mortal at the same time. This is no contradiction of the law of non-contradiction. Or, if we want to take the other possible solution, or both, as a cessation of life, death is not univocal. Human life, according to scripture, is the animation of a material body by the breath of God, or possibly, if classical dualism is true, by the unity of body and soul. Neither of these are true of divine life. So ceasing to live as God is therefore different from ceasing to live as man. And the incarnate son cannot do the former, that is, cease to live as God, but he can and did do, or could, can't any longer, could and did do the latter. He is not immortal and mortal in the same sense. No violation of the law of non-contradiction, contrary to Dr. Tuggy's insistence otherwise. So Dr. Tuggy's objections to Christ's deity assume that God shares a human-like, one-to-one ratio of person to being, that God exists in time like a human, is alive in the same way as a human, and that incarnate God would have only one mind and exhibit identical qualities in both divine and human natures. But of course, I reject these assumptions. So how should you answer tonight's debate question? Is Jesus human and not divine? I don't know if you can read that slide from where you're sitting, but that's a box and a note inside that says, I don't fit in your box, God. I would encourage you not to put God in a box the way that it seems to me Dr. Tuggy is doing. The evidence that I presented is clear according to the authors of scripture, including Paul, including the author of Hebrews, including Matthew, and including Jesus himself. We must answer tonight's debate question, no, Jesus is human and divine. Thank you. Well, there's a lot to think about in this one, isn't there? No one said this was going to be easy. In our next episode, the debate continues as we interrogate one another, answer questions from the audience, and give our closing statements. If you want to go through this debate in more than audio form, you may benefit from the many dozens of slides that we use during our presentations, both opening statements and rebuttals. And again, that fully produced version will be available at 21stCenturyReformation.org. And if you can't wait and must hear the rest of the debate now, I'll have a link on the blog post for this episode where you can see the version of the debate live streamed by Carlos from Restoration Fellowship. This week's thinking music has been the track Victoria by Admiral Bob featuring Sasha End. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.